about it on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. He didn't like my friends, and I thought, oh, he just really likes me. <laughs> he wants to hang out with me instead of them. Those kids are the only reason that I made it through this entire thing. Because in, the, in my mind, I knew I, I have to get through this. I have to get through this no matter what the situation was. Because if I don't come out of this, he, he has them. Today is a two-parter with Ashley and then Desiree. Ashley's story involves the military, and Desiree's is one of same-sex abuse. Welcome, Ashley. My name's Ashley Gilbert, and I'm from Turner, Maine, and I'm 40 years old, and I am a mother of two kids, and I work as a solar broker. And how did you get in touch with, how did you connect with Finding Our Voices? I actually saw it on the local news, and that's how I found you. Would you say the military was a big factor in what you went through? Yes, Definitely. I was married for almost 10 years, about nine and a half years or so as a military spouse in the army. Could you tell me how old were you when you met this person? I was roughly 27, eight years old when I met. That's how my... old I was. That's how old I was when I met my ex too. 27. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I was working and I was living in Maine at the time and I was working for a local bank and mortgage before we were married, conceived our first child that I actually lost. We lost our first baby mm. and then he went away in the service. What was your first impression of him? Well, I met him through playing recreational softball at a tournament. He was pretty young. How much younger than you was he? Today, he is 33 and I'm 40. So he's about seven years younger, seven and a half. So he was like barely 20 when you were 27. Correct. So did he seem like immature or was that, that's, did it seem like a big age difference? It did because I had already experienced most of my 20s. I was set in my career and I didn't plan on having a child with him just kind of happened by accident. So the one that I lost my first pregnancy in my life and I, it brought, I think because of what we went through together, because we were looking forward to having the baby, even though we were not married, even though he was going away in the service, it just happened that way. And it kind of brought us emotionally closer. Um, that experience we shared as friends. <laughs> He went away to basic training and we got married in 2013. And when he was away, getting ready to deploy, actually. 
tell me about how the abuse started. If were there red flags and when when did things turn or it started on when he returned from his first deployment from Afghanistan. I we got married before he went away and it was very fast and abrupt out of state in Kentucky. And then we conceived our first baby and I lived in Maine. And then I found that I was pregnant and we didn't really have a wedding. We just had like a justice of peace and a couple of couples I didn't even know. So it was very fast and I was uncertain at the time if I wanted to do it. Then he deployed. He came back before I had my daughter and to down south where we were stationed. And I noticed as soon as he returned from being gone for about nine or 10 months straight that something wasn't right compared to how he was when I first met him. He was heavily using alcohol and got pretty violent before I actually delivered my first baby in our apartment. So w- when he had been away, were you excited to see him? Like when you f- when he first came back? Well, we, I was excited to have my first baby considering I lost my first, but it was, it was hard because I wasn't, I had, you know, my grandfather wasn't served in the service and so did a few other family members in my life on my father's side. However, I didn't really understand how it worked when, you know, they were in combat zones, when I could talk to them, how long it would take for the response. It's a different time zone. So it was exhausting because I worked full time for the bank before I moved to Kentucky. So when I did that, he had come back and his behavior was totally different. It was erratic. It was abusive physically. After he returned, how long did it take for him to... I don't know, lose his temper or be angry or any of that with you? Only a, a couple of days, few days. He got really intoxicated one night in our new apartment that I had moved down and set up for us as best I could while I was almost full term. And he got invited people over I didn't know. And I felt really uncomfortable. And I wanted that time to be with just the, uh, the two of us so we could reconnect after him being gone for so long. And I turned into a nightmare. And there was weapons involved and I was scared for my life, to be honest. How pregnant were you? I was just a a couple weeks before I delivered a few weeks. Horrible. That's so horrible. I mean, I can't even imagine. It makes you just want to cry just thinking about it because you're so vulnerable, you know, and and here you are like just about to have your baby. And, you know, that's a really stressed out time. It's your first child. It's scary to have a child, right? Anyway. Well, he, he stole weapons from the military base and took them off post unlawfully with one of his friends and thought it was funny when he brought loaded guns into my apartment when I was about to deliver my daughter. Big ones. AK-47s. So did this happen? So so he, a day or two after he came home, this thing happened at night. His friends were over at your house. Were his friends witness anything? Any, any one, one particularly was there that evening when I realized that there was loaded guns under my bed. And what was the friend's attitude to all of that? Oh, he was just outside on our, on our balcony, which came off of my, my bed, my master bedroom. And he thought I, you know, I, I just, I, it's, it's, it's hard to think that far back because of the frame of mind I was in, but I do re- recall it quite vividly. And I, he was alone with me at one point when these guns and I remember telling him you need to return him to the base. You're going to get arrested because we were stationed at Fort Knox. That's the gold reserve post. And we lived off post, but Fort Knox, if you steal anything, it's like automatic, 
imprisonment for life. So I felt really? like, well, you f- that's the gold reserve at Fort Knox. If you could steal a penny and you they'll you're in trouble. That's high, high security. You high, knew high. that. Did he know that? Yes. That's just he was the sol- he was a soldier. I was just his spouse. So did you did he threaten you with the guns that night or well he hit me across the face when I was pregnant with a whiskey bottle. A whiskey like gallon of whiskey. Like he was drinking it. Like I'd never seen somebody I didn't know what was going on because, like, obviously I'd been out in my life and seen people drink and drink with people, but I didn't know what the point of him, like, getting so drunk was. Like, he clearly lost his mind. And I was trying to just have my baby and, like, and then I felt like after I learned more about it, we had our baby and then he had orders to to change stations, like POS somewhere, somewhere else out of Kentucky and in going further West. So I had to go with them because I needed the support, the help. I left my job, you know, my state, my home state. And it was complicated. Did you feel like you needed to get away from him? Oh yeah, I did. I came back home. I actually, at one point, I think, I think before that actually took place, what I just described, I'd actually, gone back to Maine because I was my anxiety was so high and I had told my family the way he was treating me over the phone and it just it wasn't he wasn't right and then I had found so I'd come back for a few weeks and I ended up going back to Kentucky yeah it was it's confusing so I was so uncertain being left there down there I didn't have a vehicle until he came back and then we drove one down to Kentucky and that's when we had our baby and that's when I experienced the first physical abuse, <clears throat> domestic violence. So which was a few days after he had come back from the mill come back. From yeah, I, I had moved down, you know, got this lease taken care of in person. And then I just, I was getting, I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And he was just being terrible to me through the phone. I remember a lot of emails because it was mostly through email communication because where he was located. And when he had time or when he could get to a center where he could get on a computer and just very like different person, not the person that I had known for a couple of years and lost maybe three at that time, almost, you know, before we had our child. And it just, it was a terrible time for me because I so moved mean, for him. So do you mean that when you were pregnant and he was deployed, he would be emailing you like really horrible emails? Yeah. We would argue about things and, you know, and I just be like, I don't understand. Like I worked the whole time. I, left my job, I'm moving and trying to do the right thing as your wife. And it just always felt like nothing was ever good enough that I did, even though I knew I was, you know, doing everything I signed up to do by marrying him. And this is by email too. So and what was, yeah. he, was he calling you names by through email? And be- I, I remember when I was pregnant when you were, and I was still working for TD bank in Lewiston, he would, he would, I'd receive my phone would beep, you know, I'd be on the phone in mortgage and my phone would beep. And as in notification that he was emailing me from overseas. And I remember feeling like, oh my God, like, but it was so pressuring. And so like, wow, I'm about to have his baby in a few months. If I move down there, is he going to be like this in person? 
or is he going to be like the way he was when I met him? And unfortunately for my circumstance, he wasn't the same guy after his first line of duty work. I don't understand. Like we had a young, we were about to have a young family, a beautiful family with bright future and, you know, get guidance from his family, but they were far away from me. So. Oh, when, only- you reached out, when you reached out to the family, when you mean you were asking, you were telling them what was going on, what was happening there? That didn't happen until later. Like that wasn't initially right away. I was basically telling my parents, like, you know, I ba- have bad anxiety and I'm pregnant and because of the way he was treating me. You'd think that in the military, they would have a setup where if you're the spouse of someone who's being deployed, there's someone to go to and talk to about this. There is. It's called the FRG, Family Readiness Group. Okay, tell me you, about that. Where you meet when you first move to a duty station. You don't, you're not forced to do it, but it's highly recommended that you get in contact with people through the brigade and the battalion that coordinate and help families that don't understand what it's like and what it's like to be a single parent but have a spouse that you don't see. And so there was a lot of support, but it's not a perfect, it wasn't a perfect world. It was, you meet people and you don't know who to trust. You don't know if they're really your friends until you really get to know them. I had good relationships with my neighbors, whether he was around or not, to support me. So every state I lived in, which with him was outside of Maine, was Kentucky, Kansas, and Colorado. Um, before I hit wit's end, but every state I made really good friends. For my particular circumstance, people in, even some of his coworkers, people in his battalion would tell me, oh, this is what, you know, your ex is doing overseas, or, you know, I found this out, or they'd come up to me and say things, and uh, especially when I lived in Kansas, and, you know, because they'd come, they wouldn't all come back at the same time. It would take like 30, 60 days to get them all back from overseas the way they travel that way when they're in the service. And I've been approached by different people that knew him very well and always told me honestly, like, hey, listen, like, I don't blame you if you leave him because he hasn't been the best person to represent the army. The stories that you were hearing about him, what kind of things were they saying that he was doing? Drinking while he was in uniform. That's a big no-no, huh? Yeah. So I knew he had a problem, and I knew his dad also was an alcoholic because I'd witnessed it in person in my home state. Heavy, heavy drinking. Every time he came home, he always wanted to just party and invite people over. And here I just gave birth, and then I ended up getting pregnant with my son. And then, you know, moving. Pre- I moved pregnant twice, which was, you know a job in itself. Plus I was in medical college at the time and it was a lot to handle when you're, you know, when you're dealing with a husband that's an alcoholic. You know, I spent a lot of nights crying about it, about, wow, I just moved my whole life and changed my whole lifestyle for this. But then I had my kids. My kids mean the world to me. They're great. You know, they're amazing little human beings, my best friends. And It felt at the time that it was worth sacrificing my own personal happiness and um, whatever you want to call it, being a wife, just to be able to make sure my kids were okay. But 
it came to certain circumstances eventually towards the end that they were not safe. So I had to get them away from them. So in the, I mean, I can relate to this. So, so you're basically telling yourself, were you telling yourself that he was a good father or were you thinking that it was better for them because at least they had a father or that the kind of things no. you were saying? He, no, they were so young. They didn't understand, you know, they were babies and he wasn't a good father. He was an absent father, but that was because of his job primarily. But when he came back, you know, there wasn't changing diapers or going grocery shopping all the time and helping me. It was all up to me. I had to do everything, maintain the house. I wanted to work. His family kept saying, you can't work. You got to be a housewife. And I said, no, I went to college twice. I'm not going to stay home. Plus, I want to get my doctrine, my third degree. And they kept, you know, his parents eventually kept getting like controlling and it was so from a distance and it was so controlling that it was driving me nuts because that's not why I married him. He used to be a different person and his family put a lot of pressure on him to be in the service. And I think he didn't always want to be. Did he ever tell you about things he had done there that he was really that were horrible? Yeah, and his drunken stupors, I'd be listening to him like, okay, and he would act weird. And I figured I started researching PTSD and what how people acted and what the effects were and how to learn how to cope with it if that's the way it was gonna be. And like, I mean, there's a lot of service member that service members that have serious PTSD. It's a real thing. And he definitely exemplified severe signs of it every time he came back into the United States. Do you think that he, what would have it taken for him to get help? And do you think there was help available? I tried. Him? There was the plenty of help. I tried. Tried to take him one time when our kids were babies with an alcoholic substance abuse counselor. And he lied to her and he walked away and left me with my kids on a playground. He thought it was a joke. He was drinking before he went to the meeting. He kept denying, denying, denying everything he did, denying, denying, denying. And he got himself in legal trouble, too, because of domestic violence. To, you mean he, to, to domestic violence to you? Yeah, there was police involved. I mean, times where he abused me, hurt my child. Yeah. Was it getting worse? So bad I had to leave. Yeah, like I had to mer run away. Emergency fly across the country. What do you want to tell me what, what happened that was so in the end that, that prompted you to leave? He physically hurt my daughter two days in a row when she was less than two years old. She almost didn't survive. Had I left had I left him there with her any longer and she has no idea. She doesn't remember it. And I don't want her to remember it. And that's what it that's what it was for you to is that what prompted you to to, to get that out? was the last straw. And, he, and then I took my kids to safety, brought them to my family, and went back to deal with him before he left again to go overseas to Kuwait. He was suicidal and trying to drink himself to death for weeks on, and we couldn't even find him for about three weeks. Me and my neighbors couldn't find him. He was in a gutter, passed out, apparently. So, Did you feel badly for him? I I think he was going AWOL at certain times. Did I feel bad for him? Of course, I was his wife. But I tried to do the right things, and other neighbors and friends got involved and tried to help him. But I figured the best way for him to get help is to divorce him, to try to go back and start, you know, get to people that I 
could be around that I could trust while I was going through such a traumatizing, traumatizing time in my life. I was in a couple of women's shelters admitted for domestic violence because I was so scared of him and he had physically injured me numerous times. He just would literally get orders and leave or he'd have trainings. We'd move and even though he wouldn't be deployed for a few months, he was still gone through in different states doing trainings all the time. I was not probably... 90%, 95% of the time throughout his career, during our marriage at least, I was left alone with my kids. And I liked it better that way. It was, I felt, I was happier that way with just my kids. So that told me right there after, you know, I just, I could, I don't know. I did counseling. I worked with, I talked to close friends. I talked to neighbors. I talked to family from Maine and let them know what was going on. And one of my best friends saved me and my children by getting me back to New England and to Maine. He wasn't nice. He was a me- turned into an angry person, a mean person, a cruel person, a miserable person, a, a dangerous person. Did you get full custody? I did. Was that hard? Not at first, but he's challenged me on it. And he lost again as recently as this year. Because he held me at gunpoint last year in Auburn, and the police were involved. What would you say about PTSD that you have, you know, versus PTSD that people talk about that military veterans have? I actually address mine. There's a lot of things you can do that people don't realize can help. We were just talking about it yesterday at in the office at work. Me and a couple of my coworkers how. You know, do something for yourself once in a while, even if it's for five or 20 or 30 minutes, like clear your head when you're not feeling well or when you have when you're upset about something. Do you have a lot of friends who've been through it when you talk to them, a lot of women? Been through it? It's weird. When you get older, you encounter more people and it seems like it's more common, I guess, from when I, when I was younger, you know, you hear about it. It's daily, actually. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have experienced even worse than me. Or, you know, haven't experienced it ever. And they're lucky. Consider yourself lucky. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley. You are listening to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. Conversations with survivors of domestic abuse. Second Friday of every month at 4 p.m. I am your host, Patricia McLean, president, founder of Finding Our Voices, which can be found at findingourvoices.net. That was a conversation with Ashley. And now we will turn to a conversation with Desiree. Welcome, Desiree. So Desiree, could you tell me how we got connected? Sure. A few years ago, I started sponsoring different pageant girls for their nails. And then one of the girls that I was sponsoring had a director of Janet. And Janet said, hey, you should do pageants too. And in the process of me saying no, saying no, saying no, and then I had no, no, she informed me that I was competing in January and I did. And in the process of that, choosing my platform was domestic violence. So she hooked me up with you. Okay. And so what things have you done with us so far? I know you've recommended people to us, friends. Yes. 
I post about you on all of my social media. I have been talking about you. I hashtag you in everything that I post, the whole hashtag, let's talk about it. And I did the survivor testimonial at the uh, state house. Yep. And I attended with the state house when she did the signing. Yes. So Desiree, could we go to the beginning of this? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I don't like calling them relationships, right? How do you feel about that? Like relationship? Like to me, I don't know, maybe there's a better word, but anyway, how you first met this person, maybe what you, where you were with your life when you met them and how you met them. If that's, if that's okay to proceed that way. That's fine. So I was actually married to a man and we had an open relationship because of just everything that we had agreed on. And that was just how I lived my life. And he accepted that. So in the process of meeting people, I met this girl. She lived with us for a little while. She was just a friend. Well, her ex was my ex, my abuser. So they still talked because my abuser has a way of bringing you back around, even if you don't want to be there. So in, she still hung around with the girl that was living with us. And then things happened between them. They stopped talking. My ex still started talking to me. And one thing led to another and things happened. And I realized that I didn't need to be with a man anymore. And I left him and moved in with her and I definitely jumped out of the frying pan directly into the fire. When we met, she made me feel special like I was important. Like well, let me I ask mattered. you a question. So when your friend was did your friend tell you that B was abusive and you just didn't see it at the time or she never said anything about it. She just said that she was manipulative. That was the only thing. And did later on, did she explain that more had happened or? She never hit her. Oh, okay. So then, but she said manipulative, but to you that, that but, but you, you just saw good things in the beginning, which is totally natural. And, you know, I can understand that. So is that what happened that you just fell into this relationship with B? Is that what yes. happened? Okay. Oh, yes. And in the beginning, was it, was it, was it good in the beginning? Can you describe that? Before we moved in together, yes, we would see each other a few times a week and we would hang out and nothing bad ever happened. We would watch a movie or we would just sit down and talk or we'd play a board game. And then when I decided that I couldn't do it anymore. You decided you couldn't do what anymore? I couldn't continue living with a man. Got it. Was this your first same-sex relationship? No. It was, it was the first one that I only had a female. Yeah. Like I had always been lived kind of polyamorously where I had my main relationship, but then I had somebody else and she was my somebody else for a little while, for a couple months. And then I, things had started to get worse between my husband and I at that point. And she was picking up the pieces and mm-hmm. like, so when him and I would have issues, she would be there and she would, you know, talk me through things. Or when I was frustrated, she was there. And well, that's so typical. That's so typical. They come and they're like knight in shiny armor, however you want to describe it. Right. Like they're going to help you. And 
So then your affections end up going to that person because they're they're so being so kind and they're being so helpful. So you became quite attached to this to be, it sounds like you were really feeling strongly about B. I did because I thought that I finally knew where I needed to be in life. I definitely knew that I liked women, but I didn't know that I really only liked women <laughs> Yeah, until that moment. And yeah. I, at, when I met her, I stopped doing all other relationships. It was just her. I literally gave my all to her. My son and I moved in with her and then about three weeks in, was the first time that I started noticing a shift. I had been making dinner and one of the kids started screaming and she was yelling at my kid and I went in there and I could just see her bawling her fists and just being angry and then storming out into the living room and punching the wall. Wow. And can I ask how old your child, is it a son? Did you say your son? Yes. How old was your son when you first developed this relationship with B? It was in 2009. He was six. And how did you feel about B as, how did B treat your son in the beginning? In the beginning, it was great. He loved her because she gave him attention that my ex-husband didn't. And, you know, like she really acted like she wanted to be a part of his life. And I think a part of her actually did because she loves, loved kids. But as long as things are going her way. Was B older than you? No, she was seven years younger. And was she successful in her career or did she have money or financially? Was she doing okay? No, no, and no. She was homeless. Well, I don't want to say homeless. She had been living in an apartment in downtown Lewiston and it got robbed because that's the type of people that she associated her with. And then she was staying with a friend. And so when her and I started talking, like she didn't have a place that we could go back to. So she would always come over to my place. So when you got your own place with her, were you paying the rent? Yes, but she was the one that had made the initial deposit. And that was always thrown out there. Well, if it wasn't for me, we wouldn't even have this. You wouldn't have any of this. So can you talk a little bit? There's always financial abuse, I feel mm -hmm. like. Was there, do you feel there was financial abuse in the relationship? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. When we met, I was working at TD Bank and I was working in the online banking department. And I was one of the first people from Maine to start the online banking program. I loved it. I loved my job. And then when I moved in with her, I started noticing that she didn't want me to go to work. It was just call out today. You, you've still got sick time. Just you don't need to go in today. And then it, it started getting progressively worse. I would get up to go to work and she would just pull me back into the bed and say, you just don't want to. So I was on probation at work for the number of call outs that I had. And then at the end of my position there was because she called me and said that she wasn't going to watch my son and that she was leaving and she was going to leave his seven-year-old self home alone. So you had to leave work and did that end up costing you your job? Yes, it did. 
couple of jobs actually from the, I went from TD bank to great balls marketing and both of them great balls marketing was a little bit rougher because I, some of the products that you sell there are male enhancement products. So you have to have that hard conversation with men. So a lot of times she would say things like, Oh, well, you know, you like talking to guys about that. It was definitely a lot of making me feel bad for doing my job. You know, what's really interesting too, about the first scenario about pulling you back into bed. It's it's the kind of thing where like, if you confronted her over that, I bet you anything she'd be like, I just, you know, I just love, love you so much. Like it's, it would be a hard thing, right? It's sort of a hard thing to get angry at or criticize because you might be saying to yourself, well, you know, she just really wants to be with me. Yeah. It made me feel like, okay, she really just wants to be in my presence. That feels good regardless of everything else. You didn't, you didn't see it as sabotaging you at, at that time? No. Yeah. I had lost my job. So we were many months behind on rent, many months behind on the electricity. We didn't have cable. We didn't have internet. We had literally cheap food and a TV and a whole lot of VHS tapes. So it was her hustling for money, selling things, drugs included. Was that part of your life too? Were you taking them at the time? I have a history with substance. The substance that I had a problem with happened when my son was like two. He's now almost 20. So at this point, he was six, seven. Her problem was opiates. That was never an issue for me. I'm not saying I didn't because it was there. She's like, oh, come on. Just you're fine. Just it's fine. So like I did it, but I never had an issue with it. It wasn't like it was prior when I had gone through everything with drugs previously. Because again, the link with substance abuse and domestic abuse, do you feel that having a relationship with her sort of affected or impacted substance abuse for you? Or it made me realize that I'm not going there. And But I had already pretty much realized I, I had gotten to the point previously in 2000, 2005, the end of 2005, I was pretty heavy into cocaine and I ended up losing custody of my son for a year and a half because of drug choices. So I had to fight, fight, fight to get him back. And I did. I had had him back for about two years when her and I started talking, but I definitely do see a connection with substance abuse and domestic violence because knowing what I looking back and knowing her drug history then and still hearing about her drug stuff now it hasn't changed it's actually gotten worse so i do see that link and don't you also think that it was imperiling you because it, you, it works you worked so hard to have your son back and here she is doing drugs and it sounds like encouraging you to do them that's not healthy uh, nope that was not healthy it was everything from here you 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 just we got into a physical fight you've got a black eye i know you hurt my body hurts here just do a pill So tell me about going back. So three weeks in, she punched a hole in the wall. Yes. First of all, that's scary for you. That's intimidating, but also it's damage to the apartment. Like someone's got to pay for that. And the landlord's not going to be happy. So tell me about how that played out. She put a poster over it. That was it. It still wasn't fixed when we left. There was so many holes in the walls from where her brother put her through it because 
he walked in on her hitting me and he picked her up and removed her from the situation and put her through a wall. Yeah. Whoa. So there was a lot of holes. She didn't fix anything. She didn't know how to fix anything. So that didn't, I, I didn't even know that that was a thing like to fix things. I was just like, no, I just need to hide it. I'm not going to have anybody come over to the house because nobody needs to see that. Holes in the wall. When you go to someone's house and you see holes in the wall, like someone should ask questions, you know? Yep. So tell me about how it progressed. Any more red flags or what what ended up happening? Anytime I would have a difference of opinion, it was always, she always flipped it around. I don't care if it was about dinner. If I wanted to go do dishes she would tell me no, and that it was going to affect the kids. She always used the kids in every single situation about how things were going to affect the kids. So I wasn't allowed to do the dishes. The house was always a mess because I wasn't allowed to do the dishes or do any cleaning. What do you mean? Tell me what you mean you weren't allowed to do the dishes. Explain that. Anytime I would go to stand at the sink, she would just come out and try to be all nice and be like, let's just go watch a movie. What do you think was behind that? She doesn't want, she wants a messy house or. I never understood. So I can't, I don't know. It's just control. It's just controlled maybe. And so you had to, that's frustrating. And, you know, having to be, that wasn't comfortable for you. You wanted to clean things up. I didn't even know how to do it, but I knew that if I started bucking back it would be an argument mm-hmm. and the argument would lead to her saying the most horrible things about everything being my fault. It got to the point where she locked me outside of the door after she had hit me. She locked me outside of the door and yet she had my kid on the other side of the door. I went through the door because my kid was there. So things escalated pretty heavily, but it didn't seem like it was a all at once. It was just gradually I started noticing worse and worse. There were times I was pushed down the stairs and my hip was dislocated and my glasses would get broken or stolen. Um, oh, yeah, that's, take- that's something. Sorry, but you know, we have a poster that is Amber on a poster and she's wearing glasses and her quote is she stole my glasses so I couldn't see. It's a thing they do. They take your glasses. Imagine that preventing you from seeing. So she yeah. did you. Several times I lost count of the number of glasses I had to replace and my keys, my car keys, my jewelry, my perfume. I had a hundred dollar bottle of perfume that was given to me by a really good friend and Heaven forbid I wear it for somebody else. So she shattered it. I have a glass picture of my mother and my stepfather the day that they got married. And my mom is gone. My stepfather and I don't talk, but I have this picture and I have it with my mom's ashes. And it's one of the old 80s curved glass frames that frequently became her weapon of choice with me. It's curved glass. I can't tell you how many times she tried to cut my face with that. She would throw my stuff outside. She would just take my things. She would show up wherever I was. If I was going out to karaoke, she would just show up. And then closer towards like when I was done and I was really trying to get out, I would wake up and she'd be standing over me because she would 
break into the house because I had gone through the door. The door wouldn't lock. So I woke up to her standing over me, nightmares like during and after. And still, like, <laughs> there were times when she would be so angry and she would just want to make it right that she would try to have sex with me. And I didn't want to because I wasn't in the mood. And she tried to force herself onto me. And later I found out that that woke my child up and my child had to lay in his bed and hear that happening. So As she, I'm like, she, she raped you. Would you say she was, would you call it rape? She didn't succeed because it didn't go completely, but she, that was definitely her intention. Yes. And you found out that your son, did he tell you that he had heard that? Is that how you found out? Yeah. In counseling many years later, the last fight, the one that actually made me go file a report because if I filed the report, she'd make me disappear. She made that known. She got in his face. It was August 3rd, 2013. <laughs> she and I had been fighting because I had said I need to figure out what I'm getting for his birthday, which is the 16th. And she goes, do you really think he deserves anything? I didn't know what to say. And then the fight escalated from there. She threw me into a 55-gallon fish tank. She got in his face and told him he didn't deserve anything. And seeing the fear in his eyes as his little hands were twisting and he's like, I don't deserve anything. You're right. I don't deserve anything. That was enough. So I left. I filed the report that day and I, things were never the same after that, but she still tried. She still came back around. She was still, I'm sorry if you just hadn't made me so mad. You just pissed me off so much. If you just hadn't done that, it wouldn't be this bad. And then like, we didn't talk. And then my mom's birthday was August 11th. Of course, she's been gone for 27 years. She sent me an email because I had a no contact order. She sent me an email from a fake email address with her tag on it. And I knew it was her. She said, happy birthday to your mom. There was a lot. There was a lot. And I always remember thinking, I'm never going to get out of this. I, this is how I'm going to die. And I did become suicidal and I made some steps. Tell me more about the, how it affected your son. Now that I'm talking with him about things, he definitely talks about, talks about remembering them, but he's like, that's just what life was. And I couldn't change it. I was little. There was nothing I could do. So that's something that I have always held. And I'm always worried that it's going to affect him more. But he's been really resilient. And so I think regardless of everything that he went through, he has, it sucked. And he expresses that it sucked. And he doesn't ever want to go back there. And he's confronted her to this, like, to this day recently. But so I know it affected him. But I don't he doesn't talk a lot about it. Was she bigger than you or smaller than you physically? We were about the same size, but I'm taller. And was that something that you felt sort of a prejudice of, of people of not maybe believing that you could be hurt by, by her? Is, did that come up? Absolutely. With the cops, even. What She's happened? smaller than you. Why didn't you just beat her up? They said that to you? Yes. A police <laughs> yes. officer said that to you? 
Yes. It was a man officer. So tell me about how that happened that you got charged and arrested. Tell me about that. I was walking downstairs to get out of the situation and the neighbors called the cops and the cops showed up and I was viewed as the aggressor. They said, you need to leave. And I said, I need, I need my things. At this point, I hadn't even laid a hand on her. It was literally, she locked me in the bathroom and I was the one that got thrown into a toilet and she told them that I did it all. And I was like, I'm the one that's got the marks on me. She has nothing. Doesn't matter. You're going. Okay, then. Did she tell, did she tell the police things that weren't true about you? She told them that I got in her face and hit her. Did, is that true that you did hit her? Not that time. And the only time I ever did was after, you know, she bashed my head off the wall or, and it was definitely instinct. And I hate even admitting that I did that, but I accept what I did. There were times when I was locked in the bathroom and I needed to get out because I am so claustrophobic now because of her. I did swing because I needed to get out. I did. But that was one of the last times it took three years before I ever reciprocated anything. I took all the abuse, all the pain for three years. And then I started fighting back. And she never got picked. She was never, was she, did you ever press charges against her? No, because if I did that, she said she'd make me disappear. It was really hard for me to disclose to Connor about that because I do accept my part in it. And there were times that I was the aggressor because I was reacting to being locked in a room or something. So having to tell him that, yes, I did that too, was hard because I didn't want to be judged for that. But I had to be honest. So I think that that's a whole nother piece. When you find your one and you're moving forward, being able to tell people what you went through and not feel judged that's hard. Like when you're moving on to another relationship and having to open that up, is that person going to just turn and walk away? Is that person going to say, wow, that's too much. I'm out. Are they going to expect it? You know, there's so much that goes through your head when you're starting a new relationship. And I went through all that with Connor and he just accepted me. He's like, that's not who you are. But in my head, it is. Because I was told that for five years, that it's all, everything is my fault. The sky is blue. It's my fault. It's raining. It's my fault. So how, how, I, I have always questioned, how are you okay with this? How, how are you okay with me? And he's like, because I love you. That's different for me. You're in your new relationship. Has it been some difficulty because you're of PTSD or because of what you went through before? Yes, I have PTSD. I still don't like being in small rooms. It got to the point where he knew that if I was in the bathroom, don't stand in the doorway because I'm going to have a complete meltdown. I flinch. I was having nightmares every night. He has been the most patient and understanding human that I have ever met. For a long time, I waited for the other shoe to drop. And I was very vocal about that because it was too good to be true. I didn't deserve that. 
You know what I mean? I didn't deserve the relationship that he was giving me. Now I know better because we've been together for 10 years and we got married in 2016, but I still have nightmares. I still am claustrophobic. I move too fast and I still flinch. It's definitely been a road getting over that part. I had to do counseling. I did EMDR because of every time I closed my eyes. Like I've done, I've done so much healing over these last 10 years. Did the pageant help you? Yes, because I don't have confidence. And Janet and the dresses make me feel beautiful. So doing appearances and going to the art walk and wearing my sash and everybody looking at me, it's still hard, but I'm making it, it's getting easier because that's part of the job. And I have to smile and I, I have to just be a voice. And any chance I get, I talk about domestic violence. So that's, that's hard. Opening up about that and just telling people my story and just talking about it in general. It's not easy. And the pageant is making me have to do it. So it's kind of yanking me outside of that. And now I'm grateful because now I get to go and be with people like you and support things that you support and work with legislation and make changes. In the nail salon, do you have people telling you often about domestic abuse? Because is it like a hairdresser where they'll confide in you about things? Yes. I have one client in specific that just went through a horrific situation. And the day that I went and testified with you was the night that that happened. What was your testimony for LD 692, which restricts the early release from jail of domestic abusers? The notification piece of notifying the victim, because if somebody is in jail, it's easier to stay away. And if you have more days to, to be notified that they're getting out, maybe you have more of an opportunity to get yourself safe and to really be away and be done. Get support that you need. Have people around you that are going to keep you safe, that are going to keep you mindful. And so I, I think that was the strongest piece that resonated with me. You were standing right behind. You were the one right behind the governor when she was doing the ceremonial signing. So do you remember what was going through your head when she was doing that? It was a lot of wow. I was, I don't want to say I was starstruck because that's not the right word. But the fact that I had a hand in that, I spoke, I, my voice means something. It, it was extremely powerful and it showed me that I am not just a statistic, that I can speak up and hopefully I can encourage other people to also speak up and talk about their stories because I don't want to be hearing about my client who's now dead because she was in a domestic situation. I just want to be part of the change and knowing that the governor was two feet in front of me signing a bill that was going to hopefully save some lives and change some things. That was mind blowing. I never thought that I would ever be a part of that because I'm just one person. I'm just the voice. I am not in legislative. I'm not, you know, in a high ranking job at DHS and able to make laws. I, I can't do that. But that day I felt like I could. Thank you, Desiree. 
And in Domestic Abuse Awareness Month, we have a lot of special events outside of this radio episode lined up. Sarah Perry, author of the award-winning memoir of the murder of her mother in Bridgeton, Maine, after the eclipse, is joining the discussion in the online Finding Our Voices book club. That is at 6 p.m. Monday, October 16th. If you want to join us, please email me, Patricia McLean, founder president of Finding Our Voices, at hello at findingourvoices.net. And we have four stops left on our fall Let's Talk About It tour of Maine libraries. A panel of survivors sharing their experiences of domestic abuse and leading a community conversation, short films on emotional abuse and the impact on children, and a public reception with refreshments for more intimate conversations. All free and open to the public. October 17th in York, October 18th in Kennebunk, November 7th at Skadamfa Library in Damrascada. Through October, the faces and voices of 15 main survivors are papering a bank of outdoor lower windows at the Rockport Public Library on Russell Avenue. My photo portraits and the woman's customized power and control wheels, so all can see the tactics that abusers use to get and keep control of their intimate partners. There will be a public reception for this library exhibit at Barn Swallow Books, which is across the street from the library on Russell Avenue. And that is on Friday, October 20th, 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Please join us there if you can. And on November 28th at the Camden Public Library, something new for finding our voices. A panel of men talking about the domestic violence they grew up in and how to break the cycle. For more details on any of these events, please visit the Finding Our Voices website at findingourvoices.net or reach out to me at hello at findingourvoices.net. And if what we were talking about sounds familiar, if someone in your family is making you afraid, or if you suspect someone you love is in danger or trapped in something that is not good for them, say something to someone. The National Domestic Violence Hotline, confidential, 24-7, is at 1-800-799-7233. You can connect to me and the Sisterhood of Survivors that is Finding Our Voices by visiting our website at findingourvoices.net. If you want to come on the show to talk with me about your story, get in touch at hello at findingourvoices.net. The music on the show is by my daughter, Jackie Lee McLean. Audio engineering is by Tammy Oropesa. Thank you for the funding to create this podcast to a Deborah Pulliam Social Justice Grant through the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Castine. Thank you for listening. And remember, love should feel good. Unpolluted wilderness, the universe
Oh